Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. We're moving along in Daniel, finally in chapter 2. It's a rather lengthy chapter, and uh, so I will, I will read most of it, um, but skip over certain portions with a little bit of an explanation. Daniel chapter 2. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. We'll pause here for a moment. And so basically he's expecting them to not only tell the interpretation of the dream, but also to reveal the dream itself, both the dream itself and the interpretation. There's some dialogue going back and forth and saying this is impossible. Nobody asks for this. Let's go to verse 11. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh, was their final answer. For this cause, the king was very angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. And Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter." And so then Daniel informs the captain of the guard and is brought into the king's presence. Daniel, Verse 27 now, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded 
Cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king? But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. As for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thine heart. And now Daniel goes in to describe the dream. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breasts and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Till, or thou sawest, till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and become like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth." And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, forasmuch as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, it shall break in pieces and bruise. And as, and whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of iron, Forasmuch as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. 
And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors to him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. That concludes chapter 2. I find this a a fantastic story, fascinating story. As the Bible records historically, the Bible contains a lot of history, and the history that the Bible does contain is accurate history. And this has been the experience of Daniel and his friends as they are in a foreign kingdom serving this, not by choice, but by being taken captive and placed in a very elitist position. Daniel, in particular, being part of the group of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is both a nation as well as an elite group of people, the same name that sort of described both here as it's described in verse 2. The sorcerers and the Chaldeans to show the king his dreams. Uh, And uh, these were the elite um, advisors to the king. Interesting connection. The, um, The land of Babylon is to the uh, east of Jerusalem, we're nearing into the time when we commemorate the birth of Jesus Christ, when wise men came from the east. Uh, it's not unreasonable to assume that it could be from this same region, uh, wise men that came. Maybe they were even Jews who came, because many of the Jews never left Babylon, um, even though a number of them did, of course, settle back in their own land. A very large portion of them never did leave, just settled there. And the teaching of the law and so forth maintained to a certain degree, among some of them at least, um, and uh, so forth. Anyway, it could be a connection to the wise men. Um, <clears throat> as the king dreams this dream, we see uh, some threads of uh, uh, thing happening here through this story is, of course, one of them, the sovereignty of God. Obviously, this king, the the dream that he had was from God. Uh, No one but God can foretell the future. And so 
the Lord caused this dream to happen. But one might wonder, why did the Lord allow or cause him to forget the dream? Perhaps it was to highlight God's almighty power that only he, through his chosen vessel Daniel and his friends, could reveal this dream. But yet at the same time, the enemy enters into the picture and causes the king to be extremely furious and angry and wants to destroy all of the advisors of the king, Daniel being among them. Perhaps the enemy, uh, unbeknownst to the king, of course, wanted to develop this plan or this piece of the plan uh, to have Daniel killed and his friends, knowing how powerful a spiritual force, shall we say, this man Daniel was. And the rest later on in the book, we will see that as Daniel is described as contending with spiritual forces in high places. And it would seem perhaps the enemy was afraid of the power, spiritual power that God had given to Daniel, that Daniel had uh, developed by his relationship with God among, as well as his friends and wanted to find a way to kill him. The enemy does this, finds ways, um, whether through various means, to wipe out God's people or wipe out key people and attack. There is so much spiritual warfare that's described here in the book of Daniel, so much spiritual warfare happening in our day and age and always has been happening, ebbs and flows, maybe greater levels of spiritual warfare at some times or in some places than in others. But nevertheless, if you are close to God and if you are uh, fruitful in the kingdom of God, you can be sure that you are a target of the enemy. And he will find some means to try to undermine your work, to try to uh, thwart your work, to try to distract your work, to try whatever means he may use. Some intentional means by people that have wicked plans. Other, it may just be people acting in their own innocence, thinking they're doing something right, but yet it somehow interferes with God's plan and, and your ministry or your ability to serve. Um, many, many different ways that the enemy works, and it requires uh, discernment to be able to recognize uh, some of them at least and to, to be able to uh, pray against that and spiritually battle uh, against that. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the sovereignty of God prevails. Even though the enemy wants to try to do things, God prevails. And we see how, as the captain of the guard is coming to Daniel, um, it seems that he didn't immediately execute everyone. Uh, otherwise, Daniel wouldn't have had a chance to even speak. Um, but nevertheless, God gives grace here for Daniel to even approach the king. Apparently, Daniel was not in this first group or first meeting with the king, it would appear. Um, because he wasn't aware of the situation uh, immediately, and, and the captain of the guard had to explain it to him. And so Daniel goes in and desires an audience with the king and asks him for time. I find this ironic because this is precisely what made the king angry in verse 8, which is a verse that we skipped over, as the wise men are having dialogue with the king, explaining to him how unreasonable his request is, um, he maintains his, um, uh, shall we say, belligerence in saying, you will do this or you will die. Um, didn't seem to have a logical, reasonable mind at all about it. Uh, but 
one of the accusations the king said to the wise men is, oh, you're just trying to stall for time because you've prepared lying words to me and you're going to try to make up a story here. No, this is urgent. Okay, everybody, head off. Well, God somehow intervened here as Daniel comes to the king and asks him for time. And he was granted time. And so he goes to his friends and they pray together. Now, notice what's happening here. Daniel knows he's the only one that um, he, he had a, a high level of confidence here that God is going to show him the dream. You know, how, how, did, how could he express this level of confidence and faith in God that God's going to do this for him? Um, earlier in the chapter, uh, in chapter 1, I believe there was the phrase here that uh, Daniel had the ability to interpret dreams. I, I might be mistaken on that, but somehow that seems to sound familiar to me. So perhaps Daniel had previous experiences where he interpreted dreams. You know, we know that Joseph was one who had that ability also. So there's very few people recorded in the scripture that could do this, given by God, of course. But nevertheless, notice how what Daniel's strategy is here. He doesn't do this as a solitary warrior. He recognizes the value of his other faithful friends. You know, he could take the, the position and say, well, I've been given this gift of, of uh, telling dreams, so I'm going to go and I'm going to pray by myself and God's going to reveal this to myself and I'm going to solve the problem and I'm going to be the hero. Um, he doesn't take that approach. He recognizes that partnership with other faithful believers is important in order to fulfill his mission. Even though they don't have the same level of gifting as he does in this particular area, he recognized the importance of their contribution to the overall success of God's work here. And so he goes to them, he shares with them the situation, and they have a prayer meeting together. And that night, Daniel reveals, is dreams the same dream, or it's revealed to him in the night what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. And notice his friends um, response. They recognize their supporting role here. In this case, Daniel is in the limelight. He's in the forefront. He's meeting with the king. He's got, in a sense, maybe a higher risk position here, um, uh, probably more stressful position in facing this and being able to express this to the king. Um, but they recognize their supporting role in his success, in God being su- successful through Daniel. You know, they don't take this um, approach saying, well, you're the one that's got the gift of dreams. Why are you coming to us? Um, go ahead and pray yourself and see if God's going to uh, do that, and then you'll get the glory. Um, what part do we have in it? Um, no, they recognize their role. And so it is in the body of Christ. Each of us have been given different roles, some more prominent and public roles, some more risky roles, some maybe more behind-the-scenes roles. Whatever the role is, it's a, it's a blessing and important for the success, shall we say, for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the functioning of the body as um, the witness of God in the world, as the witness of Jesus Christ in the role in the world, that we function uh, according to our role and not grumble that our role isn't something else. 
and that, that maybe we're getting the, the, not the recognition that we deserve perhaps or, 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 or whatever the case may be. We see a beautiful example of teamwork and cooperation in order for this to move forward. So it requires humility on all parts, uh, on all people here, uh, and uh, for them to function together. And so it's an encouragement for you in exercising your gifts. Recognize what your gift is. At times, it may be the active prominent one. At other times, it may, you may have more so the supporting role, the helping role, the, the encouragement role, the, the uh, uh, whatever other it, way it may be described in, in being able to help that uh, function, that ministry, um, that service to the Lord, um, that furtherance of the gospel be successful. Um, especially on relying on others in prayer. And then other times others will rely on your participation in prayer for that success. We need each other as the body of Christ. And the enemy is going to want to get in there to disrupt that. And he's going to try to raise up maybe pride or self-sufficiency or uh, elitism or whatever other kinds of uh, isms and, and vices that there might be uh, in the human heart that just need to be tempted and stirred that, that he might be successful with in disrupting God's work and in disrupting his cohesive plan of functioning well together. Um, let's recognize when the enemy is targeting that or tempting us in those ways and um, by God's grace, turn from that, humble ourselves, and function as he inspires us to do so. And so, uh, in between verses 20 to 23, we see how Daniel gives God thanks. Um, and his expression of thanks, notice this, his expression of thanks recorded in the scripture is much longer than his record of what he even asked God. It just says that he did. It doesn't record their prayer meeting and what they asked God to reveal the, the hours or the night before this. Um, as Daniel gives this uh, expression of thanks to God in the morning. And as part of his expression of thanks, he recognizes God's sovereignty. This is the prominent theme in his prayer here, um, that uh, as far as wisdom, as far as might, um, and he acknowledges to God, he's the one, in verse 21, changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He's the one that gives wisdom. So if someone is wise, it's because God has given them wisdom. If uh, someone has knowledge, he is created that brain to be able to have that type of knowledge and to make those those calculations or decisions or whatever it might be. He acknowledges God is the one who gives these things, and he thanks and praises him for that. And so may we take that for ourselves. Whatever level of ability that we have been given, recognize that it has been given as opposed to something that we earned and worked for. Yes, there is a measure of diligence that we need to apply to ourselves to exercise the spiritual disciplines and so forth. That's necessary. Um, but nevertheless, the gifting and the prospering of it is still from the Lord. The same way um, an analogy to that would be, of course, plant growing. Um, only God can give the increase. We can plant, we can water, we can take care of it and so forth, but we actually cannot create the growth. That is something that God does. 
But in order for that growth to happen, he invites us to participate in the functions, in the discipline, in the supporting of that to happen. He gives glory to God, the King. Um, one thing to point out is that this dream, as he's going to now reveal it to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel himself, later on, in years later, has another dream. He's got numerous visions and dreams that are recorded in, in, later on in the book of Daniel. But uh, just sort of a little bit of a foreshadowing, shall we say, foresight into Daniel's chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, Daniel has visions that connect back into this dream and have some similarities there and expand certain elements of what this dream is um, in more detail, um, as well as more future layers of prophecy uh, to this this dream and and what is to come. Uh, But uh, we'll save that for that time whenever we get to that time in the book, by God's grace. Let's take a look at this, this dream. As he sees this image... Um, that now, as he says, represents future, uh, present and future kingdoms to come. The present one, the head of gold, represents the Babylonian Empire. That was what Nebuchadnezzar was king of. After him came the Medes and the Persians, uh, two uh, uh, nations, shall we say, coming together uh, to form an alliance, Darius the Mede being the king first, and then later on Cyrus the Persian. And Persian, Persian. Um, and then the third kingdom being Alexander the Great, uh, coming from Macedonia and taking over. His father already took over the Greek city-states prior to that, and him having already an ex- inherited, shall we say, an expanding empire at a young age, 20 years old, having been specifically raised by his father Philip, uh, this is what's in, in world history recorded, uh, being a fearless warrior, being trained from young childhood that way being trained by some of the best philosopher of the day uh, to be able to uh, train his mind to be extremely brilliant and resilient and have the fortitude of mind. It's not only physical strength that someone needs in order to succeed, but also mental strength. And it seemed that Alexander the Great had these, these things, that such at an age of 20, he took over the kingdom of his father. Uh, and expanded it, lived a short life, uh, died at uh, 32 or 33, something of that nature, um, and died very suddenly. It's like in the prime of his life as he wants to go into battle and to continue to expand his kingdom, as history records, and uh, he just wasn't feeling so well that day, so he thought he'd hold off a few days and, and uh, before charging ahead into battle here, just make sure that he's performing uh, top top notch here, and he dies suddenly. It's not known exactly why. There's theories, perhaps maybe he was poisoned by his generals or he had suddenly succumbed to a disease, whatever the case may be. But, you know, someone so fierce and powerful, uh, seemingly, suddenly dying in uh, his uh, prime, you know, in mid-30s. Very clearly, as we see how um, what is described here in, in Daniel about he setteth up kings and he removeth kings, right? That was part of what Daniel was vividly displayed to him in the dream. And he acknowledged this in verse 21. He removes king and he sets up kings. And it's just just like that. Um, God can cause turns of events to happen like that. After Alexander the Great uh, comes the Roman Empire, um, which was then the world empire at the time when Jesus was born. 
And there's various significance as that being the legs and the, and the feet and the toes and so forth. Some more details there than I'm able to uh, fully be able to uh, articulate, even understand myself, to, to be able to articulate where the Roman Empire at some point during Constantine, he administratively divided it into two, uh, the East and the West. Um, and uh, when the West Empire fell in the year 400 and some, uh, the East still survived for, uh, I was told, like another thousand years or something, the Byzantine uh, Empire. But nevertheless, we, we get to uh, verse 44. So that's sort of an overview of the history that, or the, the future then, the future uh, to come to pass, which has come to pass as history records. And so we see how God understand, God is the revealer of secrets and prophesies things that do come to pass. Only God can do that. But I want to focus on verse 44 because verse 44 is really, uh, really key here. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And that kingdom shall not be left to other people, meaning someone else isn't going to take over that kingdom, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel's referring to verse 45. He explains it. The stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands and comes along and smashes this entire image. This is the representative of in the days of these kings, all four of them, the Babylonian, the Medes and the Persians, the Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, uh, God was setting the stage to usher in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And in the days of the Roman Empire, Jesus Christ was born. Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh it's not the first time that God came to dwell among men. God, in a sense, was always among men in different forms, but in the form now of a full a human, fully God and fully man, that was new. Um, and in a sense, that is contradicting what the theology of the day was. If you go back to verse 11, uh, when the the wise men are describing to, to King Nebuchadnezzar that it's only God that knows how to, the gods, they didn't know Jehovah, it's just the gods, multitude of gods, uh, know this, and they don't live among us. Um, and so, in a sense, you know, your request is, is, is hopeless. Um, well, that's actually not true in the sense that God, Jehovah, through Jesus Christ, dwells among us, dwelt among us, and his, God's presence always was among us, especially among those who believed and desired to have relationship with him. He's not so far removed as was the idolatrous religions of the day. That's a real blessing because this God who is sovereign over the nations, sovereign over the development of what's happening in the world then and now, is with you and I. That is a tremendous comfort that we can uh, spiritually reach out to him and he is right there next to you, guiding and protecting your life, your path, that nothing can happen that doesn't pass through his uh, permission first. Let's take that as tremendous, tremendous comfort. Um, 
Now back to sort of God setting the stage for Messiah to arrive on the scene. A, a, a pivotal moment in history, critical. And so hundreds of years of kingdom development takes place such that the world is in the fullness of time. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, the Apostle Paul is writing, in the fullness of time, God sending his son. Um, that uh, things where each kingdom had various uh, contributions to the state of the world that made it, uh, shall we say, ripe or the fullness of time for Jesus to appear in the gospel to be spread. You know, two of them in particular that I would know, I'm sure there's many more, but two off the top of my head that I can point out to, uh, Greek being the universal language uh, that was set up by the previous uh, empires, and then the Roman roads infrastructure to make travel uh, so much easier. Those two things were huge contributions to the spread of the gospel and the functioning of the early church. So in that sense, these are maybe two little evidences that I'm aware of as part of this fullness of time for Jesus to appear on the earth uh, for us. There's a connection uh, to Daniel chapter 7, as there's a parallel dream to this. Uh, Verse 14 And there was given him dominion, referring to one of the beasts. Um, So this is interesting. Daniel refers to these as beasts. And in the Revelations, the same. World powers are called beasts. I wonder if there's a reason, um, maybe symbolic reason for that, as many of them are not friendly. Um, Certainly not friendly to the king of kings and those who believe on his name. Maybe that's why they're called beasts. But it was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom and all people, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion uh, is everlasting and shall not pass away. And his kingdom is that which shall not be destroyed. So this one is not referring to one of the beasts. This is referring to Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, the same thing that verse 44 in chapter 2 is pointing out here. That in the days of those kings, Jesus set up a kingdom. As he came, and um, I, I did a, a word search in, in the New Testament, it's over 150 times that the word kingdom is used in the New Testament. Most of them in the Gospels. As the words of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is come. The kingdom of God. Uh, the gospel of the kingdom. Numerous phrases like that, referring to kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. That's a lot of kingdom language. And sometimes we don't really notice that or take note of how significant that is, that Jesus came and he set up a kingdom, a different kind of kingdom than these worldly kingdoms were described. Herod, of course, didn't understand that, and he felt threatened by the kingdom of Jesus, even though King Jesus' intent was not to threaten Herod's kingdom. But for those types of kingdoms that demand total allegiance to their subjects, then the kingdom of Jesus is a threat to their kingdom. Because his intention for the kingdoms of this world is for certain domains and certain authority and certain jurisdiction and no further. But often the worldly kingdoms want to expand either their territory or their jurisdiction or their control or their measures. And uh, these are not what God had planned for them to do. Uh, And so when those that are believers 
at times are pressed in making a choice. Who is, who has my allegiance? Is it Jesus or is it Caesar? That was the prevailing uh, uh, point in, in Jesus' time because some of these, these emperors and previous things, they set themselves up as a god and, uh, and connected worship to them as part of their, their uh, rule. And so worldly kingdoms consider the kingdom of Jesus a threat. Lots of times, the enemy would work through them to set up a counterfeit kingdom that attracts our attention and our desires and our allegiance with even good programs, shall we say, and so forth. You know, we've got the the, the values that many world kingdoms uh, want to do good, you know, eliminate world hunger and poverty and, and homelessness and, and, and provide health and education and equality and clean water and energy and, and jobs for everyone and a good economy and, and a good environment and, and take care of crime and peace and justice uh, and prosperity for all and security and, and personal well-being and so forth. You know, which earthly kingdom to some degree doesn't promise some of these things? And in some way, kind of, sort of, deliver on some and perhaps kind of destroy others. Um, only the kingdom of Jesus can truly deliver fully all of those kinds of promises and so much more. Eternal life and meaningful relationship with our creator. And the worldly kingdoms try to mimic that to a certain degree and call for people's allegiance May we not be fooled by their allegiance and give our total allegiance only to Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign Lord. And may we pray as the Lord's Prayer, as he taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it is his vision and intention for the kingdom of God to be the here and the now, representatives of his values, of the peace and justice and being able to get along one with another and to function well in love, uh, preferring and honoring one another and so forth. These values that, that Jesus taught, it's his desire that the church is his kingdom and demonstrates these values and gives a vision to the world of what a real kingdom is and can be like. And so may we have that vision, not only the future vision of uh, when I die to go to heaven and be in the kingdom of God then, uh, yes, that's of course what he promises. But between now and then, you, you, you may have 50 or 70 years of life left. Um, you need to live daily for the kingdom of God in, in the things that he calls you to live. And so today, again, is the gospel invitation to join this kingdom. If you are not yet a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, I encourage you by repentance and faith, believe him and submit to his allegiance. And don't let anything else steal that allegiance from you. Give that to him alone in order for him to transform you and adopt you as a citizen into the kingdom, but much more than just a citizen, as an adopted child. There's no kingdom on this earth that treats its subjects in that kind of love and tenderness and providential care as Jesus does for his adopted children. There's probably a lot more things that could be uh, described in this chapter and uh, with, with depth that I'm not able to and, and we're out of time anyway. Uh, may, may we let this rest at this point is that you uh, receive the invitation to join this kingdom by faith and repentance 
in Jesus Christ. And those of us who have already joined that kingdom, maybe a long time ago, let's persevere in our desire to worship him and serve him faithfully, uh, correctly and accurately representing him as our king. Amen.